Good evening. I'm Jeff Bennett. And I'm Amna Nawaz. On the news hour tonight, a bipartisan Senate deal to fund border security, Israel and Ukraine looks like a no-go after House Speaker Johnson says it's dead on arrival. Secretary of State Antony Blinken returns to the Middle East to push for a ceasefire and the release of hostages held in Gaza. Can diplomacy prevail? I think it's possible. You make it a break. How long that break will be and whether it can be turned into something more permanent is, uh, is another matter entirely. And delays in former President Trump's insurrection case push his court dates further into election season. The consequences for this year's presidential contest. Welcome to the News Hour. The most significant immigration reform proposal in a generation is now in the hands of the U.S. Senate after negotiators unveiled their compromise deal. The bipartisan deal would tighten asylum rules and allow for partial border shutdowns while increasing enforcement and opening some new avenues for legal migration. The measure would also offer billions of dollars in assistance to Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan for the defense of their respective borders. Congressional correspondent Lisa Desjardins has been digging into the bill text and the immediate reactions to it. Lisa, it's good to see you. So this is a significant bill, 370 pages, as you well know, because I know you read through the entire thing. What are the highlights? Okay, lots to talk about here. And want to help people understand there are two pieces to this bill. One, very big policy, especially on asylum, and then also big dollars when it comes to security here and abroad. So let's look at the overview of what's in here. First of all, let's talk about that immigration policy. There is an overhaul, especially of the asylum system, and then it also expands ICE detention in general. It would also allow for border closures of some sorts, meaning a stop in processing of asylum claims under certain circumstances. Now, as for that national security and international security piece, $60 billion for Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel. And if you look at all of the other dollars in here, it adds up to over $115 billion. And it that kind of that money is essentially what President Biden initially requested. So really the focus here at this moment is on that immigration policy part. The senators who negotiated this say it was extraordinary. They were even able to get to this point, but they now have critics from both sides and they are stressing to them that they see this as a once in a generation bill. And this week, the Senate will begin to take action on a large national security package that includes a realistic, pragmatic, and the strongest solution to our border crisis in my lifetime. Are we as Republicans going to have press conferences and complain the border's bad and then intentionally leave it open after the worst month in American history in December? Those are two of the senators along with a third Democrat, Chris Murphy of uh, Connecticut. Those three senators are the ones who have been behind closed doors, weekends, nights for the past few months to negotiate this out. Also with the Biden team on board this, but now they have to convince 60 senators. And right now, by my count, there's just 12 with most senators not saying how they feel. Yet. And we should say that Omnis set to speak with Senator Murphy momentarily. President Biden, back when he was trying to salvage this deal, he said that he would shut the border down using the authority granted to the president in the bill. How would that work exactly? This gets complex, but think about the problems that this bill is aiming to solve. The huge group of people that have been massing at the border, the surge there, many of them have crossed the border um, through our asylum policy, which has meant that because of a lack of detention space and the way our asylum policy works, they have entered the country um, almost automatically um, and waited processing sometimes for years in theory. So what this bill has done to try and address that is a few things with this shutting down the border concept. Let me explain this. This would be a new authority that would be given to DHS. And under this authority, DHS could immediately deport most of the migrants that were encountered at the border as opposed to now when those migrants are generally allowed in the country to await processing. Now, this would go into effect optionally for the DHS secretary at 4,000 migrants a day when we hit that average level. It would be mandatory at 5,000 migrants a day. Now, some conservatives have a big problem with those numbers, but that is much lower than the numbers that we saw in the past few weeks for sure. Also, I wanna mention that that is a policy closure of the border. Of course, the border, there's still open land there. This does allow a, board, a DHS secretary to continue building a border wall if they choose. 
And reading through the legislation, Lisa, what's clear is that it really dramatically reimagines the asylum system in this country. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I was texting with all kinds of people last night who didn't really believe me when I said what was in this in terms of the asylum system. So let's go through that first of all. And the asylum proposals in here. There would be a tougher standard for people to enter the country in that first screening. The standard would move to clear and convincing. Right now, it's just you have to show a significant possibility to prove that you've been persecuted. Now, a fraction of the people would pass that screening, a very small fraction. Most would probably be denied and put into removal processing and for deportation. Now, here's a big change. Right now, immigration judges are making most of these decisions. It would take the immigration judge completely out of the asylum process, and instead, asylum officers would make that decision. It's not even clear there would be a full interview. I'm not sure that lawyers would be present, though those applying could get a lawyer if they wanted. But then finally, this whole goal from this system is to do all of this in 180 days, the entire process. Now, while some on the left like that shortened process for asylum seekers, some of them are highly critical, saying this is so limiting to asylum that it means very few people who really are fleeing persecution would make it through. There's one There's voice. pushback. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. This is Andrea Flores from Forward.us. ...to reduce the amount of time it takes to review a claim. Unfortunately, this bill really goes overboard in making it even harder to get an already hard benefit. So it's adding a new asylum bar that would impact many of the people who otherwise might be able to you know, qualify for protection. So that's a concern that this is just really limiting and maybe a human rights concern from the mm -hmm. left. The other senators who put this together say no. Well, I was going to say there's pushback from the left and, of course, there's pushback from the right. What's interesting, uh, the GOP-friendly U.S. Chamber of Commerce came out today and said they support this legislation, says it has desperately needed reforms. Why are Republicans on the Hill... Why are they opposed to it? What are they saying? And at least one Border Patrol organization, they say that while they do like the increase in detention to 50,000, they think this actually does not end that thing called catch and release. That while many migrants through this system would be given sort of what's called an alternative to detention, they would be having ankle bracelets, some say that's not enough and that this would leave people in this country able to kind of at will uh, move around, which is something that the conservatives don't like, but which Democrats say there's not proof that that's been a significant problem. I talked to Chad Wolf, who's a former Secretary of Homeland Security. I don't think it ends catch and release. You know, they talk about single adults being uh, being detained. Uh, well, they only have 50,000 beds, and I can guarantee you there is a lot more single adults coming across that border that need to be apprehended before they can be removed than, than 50,000. Conservatives also wanted some things that were not in here. They wanted more limits on humanitarian parole. It's a win for the Biden White House that there are no limits on that right now uh, in this bill. And in addition to that, um, expedited removal, kind of fast-track deportations, conservatives wanted more of that, and that also is not in this bill. So in the 30 seconds we have left, Lisa, where is all of this headed? Right. It's tricky. We expect a vote on this in the Senate on Wednesday. Now, the three senators that I talked about are moving hard to try and get those votes. It is uphill even in the Senate, which is amazing because this is the most conservative immigration legislation we've seen in decades, but they're having trouble with Republicans, namely uh, House Speaker Mike Johnson. He doesn't have a Senate vote, of course, but he has influence. Here's what he tweeted out. Uh, he said, this is, bill is even worse than we expected. If this bill reaches the House, it will be dead on arrival. The hope from senators behind this is that they can turn that around by getting a big Senate vote. Right now, it looks pretty rough. At the same time, we know there's political influence here from Donald Trump and others. Indeed. Lisa Desjardins, thank you so much for that great reporting. In the day's other headlines, a state of emergency covered much of Southern California as a giant storm dumped a deluge. The same storm had already swamped Northern California and was blamed for two deaths. Stephanie Sai has our report. It's the second so-called atmospheric river to churn its way across the state in a matter of days, bringing record rainfall, life-threatening floods and mudslides. I never imagined it would be this, this, this bad. Stan Lathan lives in Studio City. A mudslide damaged two of his neighbor's homes. It was very, very loud. It sounded like a, uh, some sort of uh, explosion or something, you know. The rain was very loud. We were just 
you're pretty, you know, scared. The back-to-back -back storms have been fueled by moisture from the Pacific, says Daniel Swain, a climate scientist at UCLA. One atmospheric river is, in a certain literal sense, uh, exactly what it sounds like, which is a highly concentrated plume or a river of atmospheric water vapor uh, in the air above your head being pushed quickly by the winds. Those powerful winds were on full display, whipping up sea foam around the Santa Cruz Wharf. The National Weather Service issued a rare hurricane force wind warning for the central coast, with gusts topping 80 miles per hour. Evacuation orders and warnings were posted for Santa Barbara, Monterey, Ventura, and Los Angeles counties. Teresa Reese was one of those residents ordered to evacuate. I'm not sure how I'm going to handle it, so I'm just kind of in a wait and see kind of position. I got my sandbags. Officials were especially concerned about canyon communities that had burned in recent wildfires, putting them at high risk for flooding and mudslides. A month's worth of rain has inundated Southern California in the last day alone. And more than a million people in and around Los Angeles were under a flash flood warning today. As of this morning, about half a million customers across the state were still without power. Daniel Swain says climate change is playing a role in the severity and frequency of these storms. I think we can really uh, expect to see more intense atmospheric rivers in a warming climate and more extreme precipitation events uh, falling uh, from them. Forecasters expect heavy to moderate rain to continue to fall on Southern California until tomorrow. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Stephanie Sai. Before the back-to-back -back storms, California had seen below average precipitation since October and snowpack was just 30% of its historic average. An official mourning period began today in Chile after weekend wildfires killed at least 122 people with hundreds more missing. Wind-driven flames tore through the Valparaiso region. The city of Viña del Mar suffered some of the worst damage. Aerial footage there showed entire neighborhoods reduced to ash. Officials warned that the death toll is likely to rise as rescuers search homes. Buckingham Palace announced today that Britain's King Charles has been diagnosed with cancer, but gave no details on which type. The king is undergoing treatment as an outpatient and will, quote, continue to undertake state business and official paperwork as usual, but he will not make public appearances. The king is 75 years old. He ascended to the throne in September of 2022. In El Salvador, the incumbent president, Nayib Bukele, appeared to be the landslide winner in his bid for re-election. In his first term, Bukele launched a sweeping crackdown on gangs and concentrated power in his own hands. Supporters poured into a plaza near the presidential palace last night as Bukele claimed victory without waiting for the official results. In all of the history of the world since the existence of democracy, never has a project won with the quantity of votes that we have won. The media says that Salvadorans are oppressed, don't want emergency measures, and are afraid of the government. Let God show the journalists this night of total freedom and total security. El Salvador's constitution bars presidents from holding consecutive terms, but a court allied with Bukele reinterpreted that ban, allowing him to run again. Back in this country, an oversight board called out Meta today over manipulated media on Facebook and its potential effects on elections. The panel said an altered video of President Biden showed the platform's current rules don't work. In a statement, it said Meta's policy is, quote, incoherent and confusing to users and fails to clearly specify the harms it's seeking to prevent. There's yet more trouble for Boeing. The company says a supplier has found improperly drilled holes in some undelivered 737 MAX jetliners. Boeing says the holes do not pose a safety issue, but deliveries of about 50 planes may be delayed. It's the latest red flag after a door plug blew off a 737 MAX last month. And on Wall Street, stocks gave ground over fears that the economy is still too strong to allow for lower interest rates. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 274 points to close at 38,380. The Nasdaq fell 31 points and the S&P 500 was down 15. And this year's Grammy Awards winners are in the books with women leading the way. Taylor Swift set a record last night, taking home Album of the Year for the fourth time. 
Miley Cyrus earned her first Grammys, including Record of the Year, and Tracy Chapman and Luke Combs performed a duet of Fast Car, her hit from 1988 that he covered last year. Overnight, the original shot to number one on the iTunes charts. Still to come on the News Hour, Tamara Keith and Amy Walter break down the latest political headlines. A look at the overlap between former President Trump's court and election calendars. A poet turned author discusses his new novel about a young Iranian American struggling with survivor's guilt, plus much more. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. Secretary of State Antony Blinken began a four-day tour of the Middle East today, hoping to make progress on a deal to pause the war in Gaza and release Israeli hostages. The Biden administration hopes that deal could lead to larger diplomatic initiatives across the region. But how realistic is that? Nick Schifrin takes a closer look. In the heart of Gaza City, in neighborhoods they thought they'd cleared, Israeli soldiers fight courtyard to courtyard and floor by floor. They've been assaulting the city for months, but Hamas militants still fight back. The fiercest combat is in the south, in Khan Yunus, a city of half a million that is increasingly filled with smoke and destruction. Israel's defense forces said soldiers raided a booby trap training facility for Hamas's October 7th terrorist attacks. Israel says it's now destroyed 18 of Hamas's 24 battalions on its way to what Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu today called Israel's unchangeable military goal. Total victory is essential because it ensures the security of Israel. Total victory is the only way in which we can ensure additional historic peace agreements which await. But the first agreement has to be between Israel and Hamas. Israel's agreed to stop the war for six weeks in exchange for Hamas's releasing 30 to 35 older women and children. The other 100 or so hostages would be released over at least two more phases. Hamas says it's considering the outline and would respond soon. Until the guns stop, back in Khan Yunus, Palestinians such as Hassam Ahmed Abu Haytham return home despite the risk of being shot. He salvages what he can. We came here yesterday and came here today to get what is left over from our homes. Of course, it's total destruction, as you can see. Local hospitals are mostly destroyed. So Palestinian Red Crescent workers operate out of tents, doing what they can to treat injuries. Ibrahim Abu Alkas is a paramedic. The free people of the world need to come up with an instant solution to end the struggle of the Palestinian population as a collective, and especially the medical teams that are daily subjected to murder or injury. And Gazans don't have enough humanitarian aid. Rafa now hosts more than a million people, nearly half the Gaza Strip. At this charity kitchen, the lines are long and supply is limited. We asked the President of the United States to help the people of Gaza. Instead of helping Israel with rockets and bombardments, he should look at how much the people are struggling to get a plate of food or a loaf of bread. Increasing aid to Gaza is one of Secretary of State Antony Blinken's goals on his fifth trip to the Middle East since October. He met for nearly two hours with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who still holds out the promise of diplomatic normalization with Israel. But Saudi leaders have made clear that normalization isn't possible without, quote, irrevocable steps toward a Palestinian state. U.S. officials hope a pause in the fighting and hostage deal could lead to progress on larger issues, reconstructing Gaza, reforming the Palestinian Authority, developing Gaza governance, and finally, normalization in two states. Now we get two perspectives. Aaron David Miller is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a longtime State Department official in both Democratic and Republican administrations. And Khaled Al-Gindi is a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute, where he directs their program on Palestine and Israeli-Palestinian affairs. He's participated in previous Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. Thanks very much, both of you. Welcome back to the News Hour. Khaled Al-Gindi, let me start with you. Let's start with what's on the table right now, and this is the Hamas hostage deal. So far, Hamas has refused any deal that doesn't say the words permanent ceasefire. This deal does not have that. Is it still possible, do you think, to get a, a, 
a Hamas-Israel hostage for pause deal today? I think it's possible. Um, I think what Hamas will look for, short of exactly those words, will be some assurances that a temporary pause would be treated as an effective ceasefire. So if they can get those kinds of assurances um, from the United States in particular, then I think Hamas could be persuaded to go along. Aaron David Miller, this is a longer pause uh, in the American nomenclature than we've had in the past. Could that six-week-plus pause become uh, effectively a ceasefire? Frankly, I think the Israelis will be operating in, in Gaza for months to come, even if this hostage deal uh, actually materializes. And whatever commitments the Israeli make to a permanent, quote-unquote, ceasefire, uh, I think all bets are off. Uh, they're determined, I think, to identify, find, and eliminate um, key Hamas leaders that were responsible for October 7th. So I think it's possible you make it a break. How long that break will be and whether it can be turned into something more permanent is, uh, is another matter entirely. Khalil Gindi, let us zoom all the way out. The pot at the end of this rainbow, uh, as I said, is Saudi-Israel normalization, what the Saudis are now calling irrevocable steps toward a two-state solution. Is that possible with the Biden administration as mediator and this Israeli government? I think it's certainly possible that the parties, the Saudis, the Israelis, the Americans, could... Uh, uh, strike a formula that works for the three of them. I'm not sure that it will be meaningful in, in the end, but it might be enough to persuade all sides to, you know, attach their names to it. I think uh, the problem isn't with getting people to accept a state. You know, even Donald Trump had a plan for a Palestinian state at the end of the day, um, as uh, devoid of meaning and sovereignty as it was. I think what would be far more useful is if the United States in particular were talking about laying out a clear plan for ending Israel's occupation, both in Gaza, but also in the West Bank and Jerusalem. If the plan were focused on ending Israel's occupation, then it would be much more meaningful. But, but as it stands, uh, sure, uh, statehood, a Palestinian state, two-state solution, these are throwaway lines that uh, have been agreed to and ignored in the past. Aaron David Miller, should the U.S. be more focused on Israeli occupation than talking about two states? Well, any meaningful commitment to Palestinian statehood by an Israeli government that was serious about negotiating a deal and a Palestinian partner that was serious as well is going to bring about, must bring about, the end uh, of Israel's occupation. Uh, I do agree with Khaled that I, I think such a deal is possible. Uh, I'm concerned about it. I think we risk overpaying the Saudis in bilateral coin, mutual defense treaty. I don't think we've concluded one with any country since the 1960 U.S.-Japan treaty was revised, giving the Saudis access to American tech nuclear technology without uh, allowing them to control the fuel cycle. That's a huge blow to our proliferation policy. And I also worry that in the end, uh, whatever commitments the Israeli, this gov Israeli government makes uh, is not going to lead to irrevocably to a serious negotiation. Palestinians have to produce a partner. Israelis need to be serious as well. Then we can start talking. I don't think Israeli-Saudi normalization is the key to ending the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That outside-to-in strategy has been continued by the Biden administration. It was started by the Trump administration. But pick up uh, Khaled al-Gindi on, on that point that Aaron David Miller made about a Palestinian partner. Is there a Palestinian partner? And is there a, quote-unquote, revitalized, uh, to use Tony Blinken's word, revitalized Palestinian authority? Is that possible? What's more important than a revitalized Palestinian authority is to have a revitalized Palestinian leadership. Uh, whether it's a Palestinian authority is irrelevant. What, what Palestinians need is a national leadership, and that speaks for all Palestinians, both inside and outside the occupied territories. That we don't have. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas is not that leader. Um, he has been uh, parochial, he's been ineffective, he's been weak. Uh, I think it, it is possible to imagine a different Palestinian po internal political configuration, but it's something that Palestinians have to do uh, on their own. But I would add to that leadership equation the United States. The United States has not been an effective broker. It has not managed this crisis well. Um, it has actually taken, I think, very reckless uh, decisions from the get-go, giving Israel a green light with no red lines of any sort. 
and we are now four months into this horror in Gaza, and they sort of painted themselves into a corner. So we also need a credible American leadership that understands uh, and has empathy for and the ability to connect with people on both sides. Right now, the Biden administration has only managed to show humanity and empathy for the Israeli side. Aaron David Miller, is there a version of the Biden administration policy that would be less, quote, reckless, less painted into a quarter and, and more empathetic? It'd be really, really difficult. The empathy part, I think, is sadly lacking. Uh, this president clearly has an emotional attachment to Israel. He has a high regard for the people of Israel, the idea of Israel, the security of Israel. Not so much, obviously, for the uh, uh, current Israeli prime minister. But I think that lack of empathy is important. As to whether the United States could be a credible broker, uh, we're facing probably uh, among the most consequential elections in American history. And the real question, I think, for the administration, since governing is about choosing, is whether in this kind of an election year, this administration is, is prepared to be risk-ready when it comes to Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking, not risk-averse. The Israeli-Saudi peace is the easy part. It's whether or not the United States can be a credible mediator if, in fact, and I don't think we're talking about this happening anytime soon, if you ended up with an Israeli-Palestinian negotiation. Last time, Camp David, I was there, didn't succeed. We were facing gaps that were way, way, way too large. But we also didn't take charge of the summit. We need to be credible. We need to apply honey when it counts, assurances to both parties. But we also are going to have to apply, apply plenty of vinegar, disincentives. Uh, nobody's ever going to plant a tree in your honor if you make peace between Israelis and Palestinians. It's a tough lift. Khalid al-Gindi, quickly, though, is there not an advantage to having an administration that um, is talking to the Palestinians, unlike the Trump administration, and at least saying to the region, this is where we're going, this is, as I put it earlier, the pot at the end of the rainbow? Yeah, if we're looking at things in absolute minimalist terms, sure. I mean, that's, that's the bare minimum required, is the ability to talk to both sides. But it's more important to go beyond that and actually understand where the two sides are coming from. The United States has always struggled with trying to connect with, understand, have empathy for Palestinians. Uh, but this administration, I think, has a much bigger blind spot than any previous administration that I've ever seen. Aaron David Miller, quickly, would Benjamin Netanyahu be willing to jettison his right-wing coalition if offered a deal that would end with normalization with Saudi Arabia? I'm betting he, he's going to rely on what he knows, a right-wing Israeli government. If he goes for the deal, he's going to end up with new partners. And those, those partners don't have much regard for Mr. Netanyahu and trial for bribery, fraud, breach of trust in a Jerusalem district court. I suspect if he goes for this deal, uh, far from this being his legacy, I think it's going to number, number his days. Aaron David Miller, Khaled El-Gindi, thank you very much to you both. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. We return now to the Immigration and National Security Bill. Democrat Chris Murphy of Connecticut is one of the three key senators who negotiated that agreement. He joins me now from Capitol Hill. Senator, welcome back to the News Hour. Thanks for joining us. My colleague Lisa Desjardins reported earlier on some of the details in that bill, also reported that House Speaker Johnson says the bill is dead on arrival. Where is the path forward now, and what's your understanding of what House Republicans would agree to at this point? Well, uh, let's just go back and understand why we're here. Uh, last fall, Democrats tried to pass funding for Ukraine, necessary in order to stop Russia from succeeding in their invasion. And Senate Republicans said to us, we're not willing to support Ukraine funding without border provisions. We engaged for four months in a good faith negotiation on the border, in part because we know the president needs new authorities to control the number of people who are crossing. And we achieved that agreement that allows the president to shut down parts of the border when crossings get very high, that dramatically reforms the asylum system so that it doesn't take 10 years any longer to get a claim processed. It will now take six months and lets more people into the country legally with an expansion of family and employment visas. But now Republicans seem to be getting cold feet because Donald Trump has said and his allies in the House have said, we don't want to pass any bipartisan border reform. We'd rather leave the border open and chaotic because it will help President Trump 
in his upcoming re-election. I still believe that there's enough Republicans of good faith in the Senate that we can get this passed. And if we do, then I think that show of bipartisan support for the border, uh, fixing the border and Ukraine can maybe unlock a pathway forward in the House. You've faced some criticism from your fellow Democrats as well. Progressives in particular, the caucus chair Pramila Jayapal said Democrats are giving in to extremist views. She said President Biden and Senate Democrats have fallen into the same trap again. Are you worried that the bill could alienate your progressive base? Yeah, listen, there, there has been nothing done on immigration in Washington in 40 years. Uh, and that is because both parties have refused to come to the middle and try to find some common ground. This is an old-fashioned compromise, one that we don't often see in Washington these days, in which there are going to be some Democrats that vote no and a lot more Republicans that vote no. Um, but what we've achieved, I think, is important. Um, the reality is this country can't handle 10,000 people coming every day to our southern border with the resources that we have. We shouldn't be okay with an asylum claim taking a decade before it's ultimately processed. So the reforms we're making here are going to make more sense of a broken immigration system. I know it's not everything that the left wants, it's not everything that the right wants, but I think our job is to come here and find these tough compromises. Well, the bill has some $20 billion for the border, but the bulk of the money is for Ukraine, some $60 billion of what's been called critical funding for their war against Russia. If there's no path forward for this particular bill, how else could you move that aid in some kind of expedited way to Ukraine? Well, right now, Republicans have not identified any other path, right? The reason why we are talking about these two provisions being put together is because Republicans demanded it. Um, and so we can't forget the reason why we are at this moment. Um, but I think that we need to call Speaker Johnson's bluff. I think he doesn't want the Senate bill to succeed because he knows there would be enormous pressure from some elements of his own caucus that support Ukraine funding to bring it up for a vote in the House. So I just think the Senate needs to do the right thing. The right thing is to support this bipartisan compromise that fixes our border and gets funding to Ukraine. Uh, and then uh, hopefully that changes some of the realities in the House. I haven't heard a better plan from any of these Republicans who right now seem to be content to sit on the sidelines and complain and critique, but not actually get in the room as Senator Lankford, Senator Sinema, and myself have. So to be clear, you think once this passes, if this is able to pass in the Senate, that creates enough pressure to change the dynamics in the House? What have you seen that leads you to believe that could be true? Well, what I'm saying is that I don't know what the alternative plan is. Speaker Johnson right now is just offering complaints. He's not actually proposing any bipartisan solution to fund Ukraine and fix the border. Uh, and the reality is there are two parties in Washington. Uh, Republicans don't get to dictate everything that happens here. That's why I reached out to Senator Lankford. That's why he reached out to me. That's why we forged this bipartisan compromise. Um, until I hear a better idea on how to get a bipartisan compromise, the one we've achieved is the only one that's possible to pass and be signed into law. Senator, before I let you go, I have to ask about another provision in the bill uh, that includes, we should say, the aid for uh, Gaza, um, among other places, but it strips funding for UNRWA, which is the United Nations agency that operates inside of, of Gaza. Uh, that's because Israel accused 12 of their employees of being part of the October 7th attacks. But we've heard UNRWA is the only group capable of actually delivering aid on the ground. So is there any other, other group on the ground that you think could actually get the aid where it needs to go? So I do. Um, UNRWA has been a very effective group in getting aid to people in need. Uh, we're also learning that elements of UNRWA are compromised. This was a demand of Republicans. The only way that they were willing to support any humanitarian aid into Gaza was to strip out the authority for that money to go to UNRWA. We didn't feel like it was the responsible thing to abandon humanitarian aid completely. And we also do know that groups like the Red Crescent, uh, groups like the World Food Program, um, other not for smaller not-for-profit actors on the ground um, can get this uh, key humanitarian aid out. So we believe that we can find good, responsible, vetted partners. We also believe that some of our allies uh, in and around the region and in Europe will be able to help UNRWA uh, keep their operations up and running. All right. Democratic Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut. Sir, thank you for your time. Good to speak with you. Thank you.
Former President Donald Trump's legal battles have reached a critical moment as two upcoming court decisions could shape his campaign and his businesses. In Washington, the former president's federal trial for election interference has been delayed while an appeals court rules on Donald Trump's argument that he's immune from prosecution. And a verdict in the New York civil fraud trial has been pushed back. Our William Brangham has been following the latest developments, and he joins us now. William, it's always good to see you. So we've been waiting on this appeals court to rule on Donald Trump's claim of immunity. What's the latest with that? That's right. As you just said, Jack Smith, special counsel Jack Smith's election subversion case is completely frozen waiting for this immunity ruling. And the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals initially set this on an expedited path, fast hearings, fast briefs. And so everyone thought a ruling would happen quickly, but it hasn't. It's been four weeks now and near radio silence. And it's all the more striking because in the hearing that they held, the three judges on this panel, two appointed by Biden, one by Bush Sr., seemed very skeptical of Trump's immunity argument, which, if you remember, the president and his legal team, the former president, argues that because these alleged election crimes occurred while he was president, he should be immune from prosecution from them completely. Mm -hmm. And this led one of the judges, Florence Pan, to sort of stretch this hypothetical to its extreme. And she asked Trump's lawyers, so if the former president had ordered SEAL Team 6 to execute a political rival and Congress didn't impeach Trump for that. He would be immune from prosecution, she asked. And Trump's lawyers eventually admitted, yes, that is what we mean. So a great deal of skepticism towards this case. So if Donald Trump loses this case, the immunity claim, what does that mean for the overall federal January 6th case? Well, he most likely would appeal to the appeals court to have the entire court, all 11 judges, not the three, hear it. He could also appeal to the Supreme Court to listen to this case. If either of those courts took that up, that would further delay the January 6th case to the point where we could be in a position where this case doesn't start till summer, fall, and then you have the former president campaigning for president when he's required to be in court on this major federal case. I mean, it, it, it's a very, very complicated situation. A lot of pressure would be brought on Judge Tanya Chutkin, who's overseeing this case, to postpone or to push it off. She's so far shown no interest in doing that. But the flip side of that is that many people argue that it is simply unacceptable for voters to go into a presidential election not knowing the innocence or the guilt of Donald Trump as to whether he tried to subvert the previous election. And then add to all of that, William, the New York civil fraud trial. What's the latest there? Last week, we were supposed to have heard from Judge Arthur Engeron about that case. He then said at the end of the week that he needs a little bit more time to make his ruling. This case, as we have reported in the past, is about what penalty Donald Trump and his associates should be getting for this decade-long fraud that they committed, that the judges ruled that they did commit. And so this is a penalty phase. The attorney general in New York wants hundreds of millions of dollars from former president and his business associates and wants him banned from doing work in New York. That ruling is coming any day now, but again, could be a major, major blow to the former president. William Brangham tracking it all for us. William, thanks so much. My pleasure. How will immigration affect the 2024 presidential election? Time for some analysis from our Politics Monday team. That is Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter and Tamara Keith of NPR. Good to see you both. Hello. Good to be here. You heard the reporting from Lisa earlier, saw the interview with Senator Murphy there. Amy, what this bill proposes is incredibly consequential, one yes. of the biggest pieces <clears throat> of legislation for immigration in three decades in this country. The fact that the president was willing to go as far Correct. as he was. What does that say to you? Well, I think it says that Democrats know, including the president, how problematic this issue is for their party going into an election year. What I find even more interesting, and it's going to be a really interesting test for the issue of immigration, is next week. There's a special election in a congressional district. This is George Santos's seat on Long Island. Um, the issue of immigration, not surprisingly, is playing a starring role with the Democrat there taking a position that sounds very much like Joe Biden, talking about, you know, being able to have more border security, supporting this plan that just was released by the Senate. The Republican 
candidate and Republicans in general attacking the plan. Mm -hmm. She has not supported the plan and attacking the Democrats, including this one, as being part of the open border party. Mm -hmm. In other words, by the time next Tuesday comes around and by Wednesday when we have the results of the election, we'll have at least our first, our very first test for whether this issue and the way Democrats are talking about it, the way Republicans are talking about it, which side can claim some sort of political victory. Again, it's a special, so we, we can't draw too many conclusions, but we'll really get a sense for whether or not, for example, if Republicans lose, this strategy mm -hmm. of just blaming everything on Biden yeah. may not work. Pam, how are you looking at this? I mean, Republicans have probably their best shot at immigration reform. They've been clamoring for it for years. Right. If this fails to go through because they're under pressure from President Trump, does that blow back on them from their base? Not from their base. I don't, I don't think it would blow back on them from their base. I mean, there is this argument that if this is the crisis they say it is, that it has to be dealt with right now, and this is an argument that you're hearing from people like James Lankford, if it has to be dealt with right now, then why wait until after the election? Why wait until, in theory, Trump is in office, and then you might still have a divided government, right. and you might not get this, so you're still, you're, at the best case scenario, you're pushing this a year out, and worst case scenario, potentially way more gridlock. But Trump has made it abundantly yes. clear that he does not want this. He was back out on the air today saying it's terrible, calling it amnesty, all of these things that it isn't, but it is a compromise. It is not the bill that uh, former President Trump would would want to sign. It's not the bill that the Speaker of the House would, would author. Um, but it is something that, in theory, uh, if it actually could get to a floor vote, which it may not get in the Senate and it, it is even less likely to get in the House, mm -hmm. it is something that could pass. Um, it, you know, it would be a, a, a sort of a coalition of moderates and national security hawks and like a, a sort of a random coalition. You'd lose all the people on the left and on the far right, but it could potentially pass. It may not get a chance to have that yeah. uh, that audition. Yeah. What speaking of those national security hogs, Amy, I want to ask you. I mean, the biggest piece of this bill is yes. that Ukraine yeah. funding. Republicans yeah. largely remain opposed to it in the House. That's Are right. there enough of those national security hawks to get this across the finish line? No, because this debate is really now about the border, yeah. and that national security piece of it is has been sort of separated out. I mean, I, I think the fact that the speaker is saying, look, we're willing to do a standalone bill on Israel, just on, not Israel, on Ukraine, Israel. tells you where the Republicans are. They do not see that holding up funding for Ukraine is a political problem for them. With I mean, their base. Or, right, with their base, or that it's a priority issue. So meanwhile, the 2024 primary season rolls on. President Biden now has his first primary win after South Carolina voted on Saturday. Take a look at these results. It is what you would call a decisive win. 96% <laughs> of the vote there to Marianne Williamson's 2% to Dean Phillips, just under 2% there as well. Look, Amy, we know four years ago it was black voters there that really resurrected right. his campaign. Did they show up with the same level of enthusiasm this time? It, there, obviously, turnout is down considerably because it wasn't competitive. And it's very hard um, to get people excited to show up to vote in a race that's not competitive. Um, I know why the Biden campaign wants to point to that 96% number and to the turnout in certain areas of the state that have significant African-American population. It's to sort of tamp down the hand-wringing among many Democrats that the campaign has a base problem, has a problem especially with African-American voters. I don't think this is going to make that case because, as I said, it's not a real race. It was, you know, this... Um, uh, a, a race against candidates who didn't campaign. If where, where it did make a case, though, is against the idea that Dean Phillips has, who's the, one of those candidates there, yeah. has been raising for a while now that voters want an alternative. They want a younger alternative to Joe Biden. Clearly, they do not, or at the very <laughs> least, they do not want him to be that alternative. Tam, is also concerns more broadly about the Biden coalition, right? After there was this opinion headline in the Wall Street Journal um, that called Dearborn, Michigan, America's jihad capital. Uh, Biden issued a statement about Islamophobia and hate and says we have to condemn it in all forms. How critical are the, the young voters, the Muslim and Arab voters, the voters of color, especially in a state like Michigan? 
So every voter matters, especially in a state like Michigan or Georgia or Wisconsin or Nevada, um, you know, the, the key swing states that are going to decide this election. Uh, you know, in Nevada, for instance, uh, it was very narrowly divided, uh, decided. Uh, President Biden won by very few votes. Same in Georgia. Um, Michigan, he actually won by, you know, a bit more. Um, but, you know, he had these very narrow victories in several key states, which means every little piece of margin matters. Um, and, yes, young voters uh, are a challenge that the Biden uh, campaign is trying to figure out how to address, but they face all kinds of challenges, like young voters are not watching TV, they're not watching ads on cable, they are not, um, they are not consuming their news in a way that is easy to find them. Um, and so there are a lot of barriers that they are facing that they're trying to figure out how to deal with. But absolutely, they have a problem with young voters, they have a problem with voters of color, uh, and they're, they're trying to work on it. Yes, yeah. and that's when I when I talked to a Democrat in the state of Michigan a couple of weeks ago. That was the exact point he made: was one of these groups alone wouldn't be enough to sink uh, Biden's fortunes in the state because he has a big enough cushion. Mm -hmm. But if you combine all three of those yeah. into one, that's where it that's turns it Michigan from a state that leans a little bit Democratic to absolute toss-up to maybe even going to Trump. Tammy, you mentioned Nevada on the Republican side. On Tuesday, there's going to be a state-run presidential primary. Two days later, there's going to be a party-run presidential <laughs> caucus. caucus. What's happening there? It's a mess, and it's confusing to voters, and many of them have already voted, early voted in this primary that will ma matter zero for delegates uh, in the Republican primary. Uh, the caucus is where it's at in terms of delegates, and Trump is largely unopposed there because Nikki Haley is on the primary ballot. Um, it's a big mess. Um, but th what is most interesting to me, though, is this is one of those key swing states, mm -hmm. and neither Trump nor Haley are really, Haley especially, not spending any time there. Trump hasn't spent a dollar on ads in the state. Um, and this is a state that is going to matter later, but right now it's revealing that everything is kind of a mess. Tamara Keith, <laughs> Amy Walter, nice closing thought there. Always good to see you both. Thank you. You're welcome. A young Iranian-American poet considers life, death, The Simpsons, Rumi, and a whole lot more. It's all part of a new novel by a young Iranian-American poet named Kaveh Akbar. Jeffrey Brown has that story for our arts and culture series, Canvas. Good evening. Aftermath from the Iranian airliner shoot-down dominates the news of this holiday. In 1988, in the midst of the Iran-Iraq War, the U.S. military accidentally shot down an Iranian commercial passenger jet, killing all 290 people aboard. That real-life tragedy sets in motion the fictional events in the new novel Martyr by Kaveh Akbar. I've always been fascinated by this event, and nobody in America knows about it. And one of the projects of the book is to give texture to, you know, you hear a number like 290 people were killed on board. If that number was 289 or 291, it wouldn't make a difference intellectually, right, uh, for me. Uh, you know, it, 290 is a middle large number. It's more than five, it's less than 10,000, right? But that one life, every character in the book, their life is shaped by this event. Thank you all so much for being here. The 35-year-old Akbar, whom we met at an event at a Brooklyn public library, was himself born in Iran to an Iranian father and American mother, and came to this country at age two, his family eventually settling in Wisconsin. He teaches creative writing at the University of Iowa and has made a name for himself as a poet and poetry editor, including at The Nation magazine. But a longer story began to swirl around in his head, and he gave himself a crash course in writing narrative. Just through the process of doing this for months and months and then years and years and constantly feeding it narrative, you know, I'm consuming narrative voraciously while I'm doing this in the form of two novels a week and a movie a day was this sort of silly diet that I put myself on. But What um, do you mean, to study narrative? To yes, really, of course. Yeah? To study narrative absolutely kleptomaniacally. You know, I would read ah. Morrison and Nabokov and Tolstoy and also Agatha Christie and also old pulp science fiction and just everything that I could find and get my hands on. I just wanted to understand how an author moves the reader through beats of narrative without making it feel super heavy-handed, without making it feel just like a cudgel of exposition. 
The result is martyr, and that exclamation point is important. I think it would be a pretty dour sounding title if it had just been martyr without an exclamation point. I think it would have felt kind of joyless, um, maybe relentlessly sad or relentlessly somber, and that's not the sort of book that it is. Um, it's a, I think that it is oftentimes funny, hopefully, and oftentimes it is quite joyful and it is quite um, ecstatic even. It's a mashup romp whose protagonist is an Iranian-American Midwest would-be poet named Cyrus, whose head bursts with contemporary pop culture and medieval Persian classics. Is that you too? Of course, yeah. of course. I was born there, raised here. I love Ferdowsi, I love the Shahnameh, I love Hafez, I love Islam, um, but I also love Erika Badu. I love EPMD and, and Vogue and Sonic Youth, and it is shape the person that I am. It has shaped the identity that I walk through the world just as yours has you and everyone's has. Another theme in the novel also links to Akbar's personal experience. In his 20s, he became addicted to alcohol and drugs, a self-destructive period that nearly did destroy him. I am in recovery. I'm 10 years and some change sober. It so has, it's personal? It's absolutely personal. Yeah. It's very, very personal. And, um, and all of my work orbits recovery in one way or another, explicitly or implicitly. Um, and every, every experience of my life, every interaction that, I'm, that I have, my spouse, my dog, my teaching position, the fact that we're sat here right now is predicated on the fact of my recovery, right? Had I not recovered, I wouldn't have any of this. But that, that stays with you. I mean, that does not Of course. I'm no away. less an addict today than I was 11 years ago. I just have better tools with which to cope with it. You learn techniques. You gain a community upon which you can draw. Um, and so it's not like I'm walking around white knuckling it today. I have resources, I have community, but I, I'm no less an addict to, you know, if I, if I take the first drink or if I snort the first line or whatever that thing is today, all bets are off, right? The partition between me and an early preventable death is a little bit thinner than it is for a lot of people. And that is true for Cyrus. That is something that the addict thinks about all the time. I've been thinking about dying, Cyrus Sham said to the artist as he settled into the black chair across from her. For his character, a quest for survival and meaning. For the author, years into his own recovery, something similar. But now bringing his first novel into the world. Did you have fun writing it? It was thrilling. It's among the most fun I've ever had writing. You know, there are extended conversations with Lisa Simpson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar <laughs> and Rumi and, um, you know, the dead are talking and deliberating and um, it's just, it's such, a, it's such a strange thing to be putting into the world and I hope that it coheres. I hope that it makes narrative sense and doesn't seem too wacky, um, but it was absolutely thrilling to write. All right, the book is Martyr, with an exclamation point. With an exclamation point, Martyr. Kaveh Akbar, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Jeff. My luck to be here. And join us again here tomorrow night. I'll speak with Joanne Reed about her new book on the extraordinary lives and love of civil rights icons Medgar and Murley Evers. And that is the News Hour for tonight. I'm Jeff Bennett. And I'm Amna Nawaz. On behalf of the entire News Hour team, thank you for joining us.